millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, October 28th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a new peer report questions the effectiveness of the state's privatized child support enforcement. Then, a Mississippi breast cancer story from the heart of the pandemic. And writer Daniel DeVise discusses his new biography of B.B. King. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Over the past several years, Mississippi's Department of Human Services has farmed out child support enforcement work principally to two private contractors, Young, Williams, and Informatix. A new report from the Legislative Peer Committee now indicates that strategy is based on scant evidence and has been ineffective in practice. Ted Booth is executive director of the Peer Committee. He speaks with Desiree Fraser. There were some concerns that were raised regarding the processes by which the Department of Human Services followed when they were deciding to privatize child support elections in the state of Mississippi. So that was what we were focusing our efforts on. When you talk about enforcement, what does that really refer to in terms of child support? Well, in, in enforcement, you um, obviously if somebody is owing the a person child support, and they haven't paid the child support, then some actions need to be taken to collect the money. And those could be things like uh, garnishments, and there are procedures whereby they can, uh, for example, deal with uh, uh, the Department of Revenue to possibly intercept a tax refund, or uh, there are provisions whereby other benefits that they might be receiving could be uh, intercepted to help pay the child support. For example, under our current lottery law, they can go out, and if a person won the lottery, they would be able to claim some of that money to help pay the child support. So that's what we're talking about enforcement, trying to get the money to the person who is owed the money. 
and tell us what were your findings? Well, there are a number of area things that we did find. Privatization is something that uh, the department has experimented with over the years. Back in the early 90s, they did some limited work in privatization. And uh, But by 2015, they were beginning to move a little further into privatization of child support enforcement. They attempted, or rather they tried in, at the, in, in 2015 to do a small 17-county uh, sample of child support enforcement to, to take a look and see how well this could work on a pilot study. But in the following year, they decided to roll the uh, privatization out to the entire state to all the all the counties and there were despite you know they made this decision however there was some evidence to support the proposition that uh, the state offices were actually performing at a, a higher level or a little better than the private operations were nonetheless um, they went ahead and privatized the entire function they also contractor who is providing the uh, services is also providing call center services. Now, some of the things that we looked at in the process was that um, when they selected the contractor, they also were, they were also hiring them to do call services. They used a legal services procurement method when uh, a certain portion of the project or work was actually non-legal services which meant that they followed a different route for uh, getting approval of the process. Uh, and one of, that was a, a matter of concern for us. And then we also pointed out there were some problems with the, um, with the contracts. They could have probably done a better job of building some accountability standards into the contracts to ensure that uh, people are being efficient and effective in doing their work. And we came up with a series of recommendations, which are very technical, but nonetheless relate to these problems, which encourage the legislature to um, deal with the question of what is a legal services contract, amending laws to, to deal with that, and also some uh, guidance to the Department of Human Services in the future on how they could craft contracts a little better to have better accountability measures in them, and uh, in general to make these processes work perhaps a, a little more efficiently and effectively. Are you recommending that it not be privatized? No, ma'am. We did not recommend that it not be privatized. It has, it has been, and our recommendations are directed really at how to uh, make the process work better. In the summary, it mentions that the pilot was incomplete, that pilot program. That is, yes, ma'am. How was it incomplete? Well, they were going to do a two-year pilot, and they decided a year into it that they were going to go move and, and go statewide with it. And what issues did you find with the call center? That is handled by Young Williams? Mm -hmm. Our concerns in the area of the call center, we were looking primarily at the contracting process, and one of our things that we pointed out was when you contract for through a legal services process, and for both a call center and for legal services, well, a call center really isn't a legal service. And that was primarily the area that we looked at in that. We were looking mostly at the contracting process and, the, and rather than the actual operations of the call center. Should there have been two different contracts? Uh, we would certainly argue that while there was precedent for running it this way, we would certainly argue that uh, it would have been prudent 
to have done call centers separate from from legal services. Now, once again, uh, the personnel board approved the contract, and uh, at which they're, they're supposed to review legal services contracts, and they said they had no basis for turning it down. One of the things that we recommend is that there be some amendments to law that clearly set out what you should do when you have contracts with legal and non-legal services components that really they ought to be severed with the non-legal services being sent a different route for approval. But those are recommendations for the legislature to take action on. Ted Booth is executive director of Mississippi's Legislative Peer Committee. Coming up, a look at breast cancer and the pandemic. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. On yesterday's show, we spoke with Jennifer Bennett of the American Cancer Society. She told us the COVID-19 pandemic has put Mississippi women at increased risk for breast cancer. You know, they couldn't go in to get screened because that stuff, you know, when when COVID was at at its peak, they shut down all of that. We could not go in and, and get our normal routine screenings or anybody that was getting these mammograms every six months. That was that came to a halt. Today, we're joined by a Mississippian by the name of Kimberly Farmer. Last year, Kimberly faced an unimaginable challenge, a breast cancer diagnosis amidst lockdown. One morning, I think it was around February 24th, preparing uh, to get ready for work. And in the midst of doing that in the shower and everything, I, you know, I, I felt something that didn't feel right. It felt, you know, I'm like, wait a minute, what is this? I'm not a fairly large individual, so naturally something would kind of stick out. It's noticeable. So at that point, I kind of prepared myself, and I I just remember standing in the mirror in my restroom. I got out of the shower, and I stood in the mirror, and I kind of held my arm up over my head, and I started to feel, and that's what I felt was this rather large lump in my left breast. Did you um, make an appointment with your doctor right away? Yes. When I got to work that morning, I went to work, and as soon as I got there, I knew the office opened at 8, and I called. And when I called my doctor right away, she said, no, come in. And so I left work, and I went. And at that point, she examined me, and naturally, I went for a mammogram at that point in time. And after she got the results, she told me that she did see something and that she was scheduling me for a biopsy. And that's what I did. And it seems like from there, everything just excelled quickly. Um, I went for the biopsy. Then I went to uh, Dr. Martin. And that's when he, on March 10th, diagnosed me with stage two triple negative breast cancer of the left breast. You were diagnosed with breast cancer at the start of the pandemic. Right at the start of the pandemic. Did that interfere with your treatment? No, ma'am, it did not. It just put me on a lot of different levels of restriction. I had my surgery on March 18th. 2020. And at that point, 
it was the pandemic was really starting to hit. And I think when I left the hospital on the 21st, which was that Friday, I believe it was, from that point on, I think at that point I was in quarantine. But then once I started chemo, I went into a double quarantine, which means not only was I quarantining because of, you know, healing from surgery, things of that nature, but because of the pandemic, I was also quarantined from individuals, even my family. I was with myself outside of FaceTiming and phone calls. I had one or two individuals who would come prepare meals for me, you know, groceries off or even take me to my chemo appoint, uh, chemo appointments it at sounds, that time. It sounds very, very isolating. This had to be very difficult for you. It was difficult, but the most difficult part was not being able to have that physical interaction because I was hands-on with my love, my grandchildren, and not being able to hug and kiss them and, you know, just to have that interaction. That was the most difficult part. Yes, being, you know, 24-7 isolated from everyone uh, was hard, but not being able just to have that love, that connection with those little people that I love so dearly was the biggest challenge for me. But, you you know, I kept a positive outlook because I knew it would eventually change. Did you feel like you were at war against your cancer? I am a a, a true believer. Faith is where I live, and I trust and I believe. Let me say this, kind of go back. When I discovered that lump in my breast that morning and feeling the lump, looking in the mirror at myself, the only thing I could say that I believe truly in my heart, I said, God, I know you got me. And I believe that until this day, I believe that. When I went in and I got received the diagnosis, my only question to Dr. Martin at that time, okay, what is next? And when he told me what was next, I said, okay, let's do it. After my surgery, going through the isolation, I still believe, God, I know you got me. I know you have not brought me this far. I know you have me. Once I went in for my follow-up visits, things of that nature, it was told to me, it was explained to me, the cancer, yes, was there, but it was still contained in the pouch. It had not attached to my body. It was just like in, in, in midair. It was just, it was there, but it had not, att- it had not attached itself to my muscle wall. It, it was still contained in the pouch, which means There was no leakage. It didn't connect to any of the lip nodes. So when they removed my breast, they removed the cancer. It was still intact. And I knew then, God, you got me. Have you been cancer-free then ever since your breast was removed? Mm Mm-hmm. How do you feel? I feel wonderful. I feel wonderful. Going through this was challenging. It was emotional on at different phases of, of the, the process in which I had to go through. I never would have thought that I myself would ever hear the words that you have breast cancer. 
I never thought that. But through it all, I assured myself every morning getting up, you're going to be okay. You're good. Keep smiling. Keep going. Keep a sense of humor. I had a friend that reminded me as I was going through my chemo when I did have those moments, you know, that challenge of not being able to interact or see, hug, kiss, just touch people, my babies. He told me, he said, you were designed to beat this. Now get it done. other words, no pity party. We got to go through this. We got to get it done. He challenged me. I want you to print this out. He sent it to me in a text message, those words. You were designed to beat this. Print it out. Put it on your refrigerator every day. Let this serve as your reminder. You were designed to beat this. That is my motto in life now. I was designed to beat this. Yes, there's no cancer there. I believe that. I know that. And I will continue to believe that. I will continue to speak those words designed to beat this. No reoccurrence. No more disease. No more cancer. That is my mindset. So how am I doing? I am wonderful. Kimberly Farmer is a breast cancer survivor who lives in Mississippi. And Kimberly, I thank you for sharing your story and your inspiration. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, we talk with writer Daniel DeVise about his new biography of B.B. King. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. A new biography called King of the Blues chronicles B.B. King's modest childhood in rural Mississippi and his ascent to the highest spheres of American music. It also contemplates those things that made King an enduring icon, from his larger-than-life personality to his sharp lyricism to, more than anything, his brilliance on the guitar. Daniel DeVise wrote the book. I think he was extraordinarily talented, as talented as the great jazz masters. And his bandmates would tell you so. He had an amazing ear. He could pick out individual musicians on a recording featuring a big band and say, so-and-so, and and that's so-and-so. He could transpose any of his songs instantaneously. I don't know for sure because nobody now can hear the stuff he was doing when he was in his teens, but I'm imagining that he had a wonderful ear, a wonderful natural sense of music, Technically, I think he had to learn his first recordings, which came out in 49, are a little bit rudimentary on the guitar craft. But by a year later, 1950, he'd clearly worked very, very hard. I think it was a combination of an extraordinary talent on B.B.'s part and then extraordinary effort. Did he gradually come on the scene or was it an explosion? Well, like a lot of our favorite iconic musicians, it was slow cooking. Riley King was playing with these gospel groups in his teens. He was playing on street corners and busking. He went to Memphis for the first time in 46, by which time he was about 20 and didn't really get anywhere, and he went back home to Indianola. He went again a second time in 1949, and so by then he's in his early 20s. This time he succeeds. He succeeds by talking his way onto the, onto the radio, getting a radio show on WDIA, which is the historic first all-black radio station. Clearly, he had chops by then, and he records his first sides in summer of 49, but they don't really go anywhere. 
you go all the way up to 1952, and that is when he goes number one. And 52, he was in his second half of his 20s by then, so this was not uh, an overnight sensation, not by any means. Whose place did he take in blues greatness? Who did he eclipse? (laughs) That's a tough question. You know, one of the things that I think those of us who aren't 100 years old have a hard time getting our heads around is that the Delta Blues greats like Robert Johnson and Skip James and Sun House weren't really known in the 1940s and 1950s. I I don't picture hardly anyone even being aware of them until they were rediscovered in the 1960s. So as far as the Delta Blues, I guess the greats at the close of the 40s, Muddy Waters is the obvious one. He'd had a hit with I Can't Be Satisfied, which is one of the all-time great blues songs. But if you read, as I did, hundreds and thousands of clippings, this is kind of fascinating. In the 60s and 70s, B.B. King, I think, was considered to be one of the great blues people, although I hasten to add that a lot of the time he'd be lumped in with the other kings, Albert King and Freddie King, and considered to be perhaps their equal. He certainly wasn't considered to be greater than Muddy or Howlin' Wolf or John Lee Hooker. I don't think he truly eclipsed all of those other people, probably until 10, 20 years ago, uh, by which time you know, of course, he was called the king of the blues, but I don't think that the public and the literati and the press considered him to be the greatest blues dude, probably until uh, around the time that he was receiving the Polar Prize, which is sort of the musical Nobel. And that's fairly recent. And him meeting the Pope, and that's fairly recent. And him uh, getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is quite recent indeed. So that's a Good question, and I'd say the answer is only fairly recently has he eclipsed the entire rest of the field as the one true superstar of blues and arguably, arguably the greatest blues artist of the post-war era. Dan, what do you most hope readers take away from your book? I remember watching that Ken Burns documentary on jazz and learning therein kind of why Louis Armstrong matters so much which is kind of that Louis Armstrong sort of came up with the idea of stepping forward from a jazz ensemble and really showcasing and taking a solo. And he kind of created a role for the solo improvisation in jazz. And it was fascinating to see, oh, that's why he's so incredibly famous. I mean, I knew he was an amazing musician and singer and one of the all-time greats, but it was wonderful to know sort of the why of it. That's what I set out to do with this book. Uh, if, 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 you'll, if you'll indulge me, I think that B.B. King, around 1950, took the T-Bone Walker style of solo electric rhythm and blues guitar and took it a step further. And what he did was to make the guitar, Lucille, an extension of his voice. So he would sing, and then he would sort of project his voice to Lucille, and Lucille would sing. That was new. That was different. And that was his contribution. That became the pervasive solo guitar sound, not just in electric blues, but eventually in white British rock and roll blues rock, and then eventually in really, I would argue, all of of pop music. By the close of the 1960s, every self-respecting band in blues and rock had a guitarist who played like uh, B.B. King, and that's, that's the takeaway from this book. Daniel DeVizet is the author of King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King. Thank you so much for sharing your passion with us. 
Oh, thank you so much for allowing me. I, I had a wonderful trip through Mississippi. It is a beautiful state. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.